Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goob Podcast. Today's guest is Tatiana Schlossberg. Tatiana is the seventh guest in our special series called Women on Top, which is all made possible by our friends at Banana Republic. The most interesting businesses are born out of curiosity. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978 by two California creatives with adventurous spirits. Last fall, we partnered with a team at Banana Republic to celebrate curiosity by talking with women who are redefining what it means to be powerful and brave. And we're very excited to be back for a second series. I hope you love listening to these conversations as much as I love having them. And I know you'll be deeply inspired by these women. So please keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To see our favorites from their spring collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Tatiana Schlossberg is the author of Inconspicuous Consumption and a journalist who writes about climate change and the environment. She has contributed to the New York Times and worked on the Metro Desk. Tatiana and I sat down at our last InGoop Health to talk about how we are all collectively responsible for building a better world. She teaches us what we can do now to create bigger change in both small and significant ways. We'll learn just how much water goes into making one pair of jeans and how we can change this and the people who already are. Tatiana understands that environmental issues do feel overwhelming, but the best thing we can do is to educate ourselves and take action. And when we do this, we realize that the issue of climate change is an enormous opportunity to fix the world we live in today. We often talk about climate change as if it's a big loss and sacrifice, and it is those things, but it also is an enormous opportunity to kind of fix a lot of these systems that have perpetuated injustice in our societies. Let's cut to our chat with Tatiana Schlossberg. I know within your book, you talk about how there's the onus somehow has become on us as individuals to reduce our carbon footprint because corporations and certainly our government right now and the globe isn't doing its part, Mm -hmm. which isn't appropriate. I think we all feel like, what can we possibly do in light of this imminent threat? But so can you sort of talk through on a political level obviously voting, but like mm-hmm. what, what you think we need to do as consumers to get companies more engaged? Yeah, you know, I think that 
when we talk about climate change and our carbon footprints, I think that the narrative of personal responsibility on this topic has been really destructive because it's made us look inward at ourselves and what we're doing instead of focusing on the larger systemic and collective problems or issues that are really causing this problem. And I think, you know, it also makes it seem like, you know, if we all just brought our own grocery bags to the store 20 years ago, we wouldn't be dealing with this. But most importantly, I think that it's let those who are actually responsible off the hook. And that's, mm. you know, uh, fossil fuel companies and their lobbyists and the politicians who take money from them and corporations, they're, they're guilty as well. So I think it's, it can be really difficult. And I understand the impulse, you know, to feel guilty about the things that we do and buy. And I'm not saying you shouldn't feel guilty as, you know, and then therefore you should go do whatever you want. But, you know, I think we don't need to feel individually guilty for climate change, but we need to feel collectively responsible for building a better world and for fixing these problems. And I think the way that we do that is by engaging in collective action. So for the most part, that the most effective ways to do that are voting, as you mentioned, and getting involved in the political process. But also, we have a lot of power as consumers that I think we have kind of abdicated. So, you know, you don't have to support a company that isn't at the very least being transparent about what its practices are and then encouraging them to do better. And, and the same thing goes, you know, making sure that they follow through on the promises that they're making, that those promises are legitimate. And, you know, a lot of companies are kind of realizing that this is a really important issue to a lot of people and that they really need to, to do more. And they are responsive to the bad PR that comes from having a kind of negative climate or environmental impact. So, you know, we can't shop our way out of this problem, but we, we can shop better. And I, I think, you know, in general, it's not, you know, we put so much pressure on the consumer to make the sustainable choice when usually we don't have that information. And, you know, I, instead it should really be on the companies to do a better job, whether that's, you know, limiting the amount of water and resources that they use or decreasing their carbon footprint or, you know, any of the, the many, many things that most companies can do to, you know, not have as big of an impact as they do. We can d go through different categories, but maybe it makes sense to start with fashion mm -hmm. because I think we all, probably that most of the people in this room tend to buy sort of fewer things that are well-made that they can continue to wear. And that's sort of how we used to dress, right? Like you would have things for three years, four years, and then that is statistically just like d dropped because of fast fashion and this idea, right, that we should have whatever we want and as much as we want. All the time. All the time. <laughs> you know, I was watching one of those makeover shows and I was kind of shocked because at the end, this one, you know, they threw away all of this woman's clothing and bought her a new wardrobe and she had they gave her, it was $5,000 worth of clothing, which is a lot of money, right? And they provided her with racks of clothing. It was like 40 pairs of new shoes and three racks of clothing for $5,000. And I was like, this is kind of really fucked up. Like you could buy like a wardrobe of nice, well-made things right. with that money. You don't need this much stuff. Right. But we've all been sort of trained to consume, consume, consume. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, in general, that's how we measure success is in growth. And, you know, the, the reason that things are cheap, whether it's, you know, fast fashion for the most part, but also a lot of the things that we buy, I mean, proportionally, we spend less money on clothes than we used to because 
it's become a lot cheaper to manufacture clothes, mainly because they're manufactured in places like China or increasingly Vietnam, where they have much lax, much more lax environmental standards as well as you know labor standards and wages and things like that. But you know the reason that it's cheaper to produce something in those places is because no one actually is paying for the cost of producing them, and the cost of producing these things should contain the waste and whether that's you know or the the problems that it causes whether that's ocean acidification or sulfur dioxide pollution in port cities or water pollution in the towns where all these factories are i mean those things should be factored into the cost of what of what we buy because that's part of the cost of making them and so so if that happens i think hopefully you know it would not only encourage better practices but it would also you know help make people feel that they couldn't afford as many things as as we all want all the time and there's you know an amazing statistic that the average item of clothing is worn seven times and then thrown away and in the US you know we donate or recycle only 15% of our clothing and so 85% is landfilled or incinerated and if it's landfilled you know if it's biodegradable material that can have a lot of methane emissions but if it's synthetic material it can leach plasticizers and other toxins into the soil or the groundwater you know in addition to just being wasteful of all the resources and labor that were taken to make those things right and speaking of corporations i know with the you talk about this but the and we found this at goop in the process of making our own label and trying to drive it as sustainably as possible that there is an absence of information it's a very opaque industry and that a lot of manufacturers haven't been called to the mat to sort of explain exactly what's going on and so a few companies are stepping forward you mentioned levis here in san francisco being very clear about the amount of water that's mm-hmm. required to create the denim and how they've brought that drastically down and i think they're training sort of the industry right yeah there are four sections in the book so the internet and technology food fashion and fuel so in the fashion section i write about denim which is mainly a way to write about cotton but to grow a kilogram of cotton so about 2 pounds uses on average 2500 gallons of water to turn that into a pair of jeans could use up to additional an additional 2900 gallons of water so it really is like an insane amount of water especially when cotton is often grown in places that are water stressed or you know dry to begin with but so levis has kind of instituted this water less campaign where they are trying to manufacture their Uh, denim using less water and I think it's not all of their jeans are not made with that uh, technique but a lot of them are and I think they're trying to get to you know 80% by next year and then they are giving away those methods to the rest of the industry which I think is really important because I mean everybody needs to do better and it shouldn't be up to the consumer you know if you're standing trying to decide between two pairs of jeans that you probably don't need <laughs> you know which one was made with the least amount of water it should be on the the companies to to use as little water as possible and you know there are some factories and suppliers that that do that but they're kind of few and far between yeah but no i think it's in, sort of incumbent on us to ask and apply that pressure and to indicate that we're curious and interested right. in asking and then i think that's how markets start to move and in this absence of government leadership mm-hmm. i think businesses are stepping in to take on right. that mantle and that's ultimately what we're part of what we're going to need right yeah and i think it's you know it's interesting that you guys found the same thing that i found which is that there's no transparency mm-hmm. in the supply chain which allows the companies that we think of as like making our clothes really don't actually make the materials that that we end up wearing they kind of put them all together for the most part. And so the fact that there is no transparency allows them to get away with a lot and and allows them to kind of feel unaccountable. And we haven't asked 
them to be accountable. But we do have that power to ask, as you're saying. And if that's not coming from government regulation or kind of industry agreements, then it, then it does have to come from, from us and from consumer pressure. We'll get back to Tatiana in just a second. You've probably heard me mention that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who were looking for an adventure. Fun fact. Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company, and today the inspiration for their clothing is designed for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. This can be seen in Banana Republic's latest spring collection, a modern, versatile take on workwear. To see our favorites from the collection, head to bananarepublic.com goop. Working out, and more specifically doing yoga, helps me get out of my mind and into my body. I spend a lot of time in my mind, and yoga is a form of release for me. I love it. But the usual barriers can keep me from staying in a regular routine. Bulldog Yoga Online removes those hurdles and makes it very easy and fun to do yoga anytime, any place, with zero intimidation. Bulldog's online streaming classes are designed to work around your schedule. You can jump into a class from your bedroom, a hotel room, or wherever you find yourself. Classes range from 12 to 60 minutes, which is great if you promised yourself you'd squeeze in a workout and don't have much time. The classes are easy to follow along to and set to fun, upbeat playlists. You can choose from a range of classes and levels depending on what you're looking for. There are more basic classes geared toward beginners, aerobic-oriented classes that will give you a solid full-body workout, and even a meditation series. Bulldog Yoga believes in all the amazing benefits of yoga, increased strength, better flexibility, and improved mental focus, but their goal is to minimize feeling daunted by a certain kind of class atmosphere. So they're bringing the experience to your living room with some levity. To try Bulldog Yoga for yourself, head to bulldogonline.com. Use promo code GOOP60 to extend your free trial from 30 days to 60 days. That's bulldogonline.com and use code GOOP60. After your free trial, it's just $12.99 per month and you can cancel anytime. Back to my chat with Tatiana. And speaking of supply chain accountability, I thought the chapter on technology was fascinating, not only because of the attention it brings to rare metals, which are typically mined in places like the Congo, but also that so many, like I was floored, I hope some, all of you don't necessarily work in Silicon Valley, but <laughs> how many Superfund sites are? 23. 23 Superfund sites. So... So yeah, it's the it's the most polluted county by number of Superfund sites. It's not the most polluted in terms of the amount of pollutants, but there are. I think it's it was amazing for me to learn that there was that pollution at all because I don't really think of Silicon Valley as like an industry or kind of manufacturing area, but that's what it was for a really long time. And only more recently is it kind of more software and this sort of mm-hmm. intangible internet stuff. But producing chips and semiconductors and all the different parts for our computers is an incredibly chemically intensive process and requires lots of precious materials. And we don't currently, I mean, the, there are a lot of reasons why, you know, they're not kind of recycled effectively. But but one of the reasons is that the companies 
kind of factor planned obsolescence into their business model so that we always feel like we have to buy the new thing mm-hmm. and then we don't recycle them or they don't reincorporate those things into their supply chain and all of the stuff that's, you know, whether it's in the batteries or the computers, you know, is mined all over the world with with a huge environmental impact and also, you know, health problems for the for the people who work in the mines or, or live around them as well. And there, I, I believe, I don't want to, you can hopefully correct me, but in the Congo, there was sort of this recognition of all the human rights abuses that were happening because of the mining. And there were all these, it was like, essentially like blood diamonds, but happening with... Yeah, with cobalt for like lithium ion batteries, which are the batteries that we all have in our phones and, but also are in electric cars and kind of all of our devices. Yeah, but sorry, you were asking. No, but I don't, I know it's not perfect, but the tech industry did sort of move to try to really clean up all those, the smelters and the mining operations and to ensure at least things were Yeah, they have, I guess some investigations found that, you know, some cobalt from certain mines or mining companies that use child labor was getting into like Apple's supply chain and they've now cleaned that up. But that that was kind of the, the biggest piece of it. But, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that I think Obviously, moving to electrification and transportation is really important for lots of reasons, you know, mainly for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But we don't often talk about kind of what the cost of that is. And the cost of that is more, if we're not recycling, is more cobalt mining and lithium mining and graphite mining, you know, all of which happen in other parts of the world with kind of often little or no environmental standards. I know. It's overwhelming, I think. I'm sure many of you guys will agree, but everything has an impact, right? And everything has a price and everything has a cost and there's a ripple effect, you know, whether it's our words or what we're buying. And it's so incredibly intense to think about (laughs) unraveling it to the point where, you know, and I think as women, we like to, we tend to be overly responsible anyway. (laughs) And so it becomes overwhelming. Where do you think that people should start? Well, you know, I, I, it is really overwhelming. And, it, you know, as somebody who reads about climate change all day, every day, it is really, <laughs> it can be really overwhelming and depressing. And, you know, things like that, the conversation that we're just having about, like, these materials are mine, but we need them for electrification, which is essential to fighting climate change. Like, the, those trade-offs are really important and, you know, important to discuss and it shouldn't be on us to kind of figure out how that happens. And that's really the kind of point that I'm trying to make is that this requires like a different, like a different system or different structures to how these industries work. But I think for me, you know, before I started writing about climate change, the environment, I never wanted to read about it because it just made me feel so anxious. (laughs) And like, it was, you know, so this problem was so big and so inevitable and what could I possibly do about it? But I found that actually, through my reporting and writing this book and by learning more that I felt less anxious and that's not because the problem became less serious or less scary but that I felt like a much more informed and responsible citizen because I could evaluate you know when what like what the green new deal actually means or when somebody's putting forward a climate policy like is that what actually needs to happen and and the same thing is true you know for companies like are they greenwashing or is that legitimate or is that just the beginning? And I think, you know, for all of us, I hope we really do need to educate ourselves because this is not the kind of, these kinds of changes don't just happen. You know, we have to make them happen. And that it's really, I think, hard, if not impossible to solve a problem if you don't understand what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, 
learning more is really the, the place to start. And then, you know, asking some of these questions that, that we're talking about of the companies or the where you guys are buying things or who you're buying them from and, and what politicians you're voting for and kind of getting engaged at the local level. Because especially right now, given you know, that in Washington, things are moving, if not nowhere, in the wrong direction. There is a lot of change that's happening at the city level and state level. And that's, those are really important places for all of us to be involved, because I think we often think like, whatever happens in the state legislature, like that doesn't have a lot to do with me, but that has more to do with you than a lot of federal law. And it also, you know, has more to do with climate change than, than you think, whether it's where your electricity is coming from, or kind of what the city is doing to plan for mass transit and, and all these different things. And, and local water supplies right. and toxic bloom. Right, right. And I love your book too, because I feel like there are so many, just even within the food food chapter, there were so many surprises, like essentially this idea that we should eat local. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's great. Support your local farmers and CSAs. But at the same time, that there's been a little bit too much emphasis put on that in light of climate change, mm-hmm. that the it doesn't contribute that much to shit food, right? Yeah, it's so basically... Also complicated. <laughs> so basically, I, you know, I felt like I wanted to... I had heard a lot about like eating locally and how we were all supposed to do that and I should feel bad for not doing it all the time. But so I wanted to find out if that was actually really true in terms of its climate benefits. And basically what I found out was farming is so incredibly energy intensive from things like fertilizer production and and pesticide production and the you know energy required to harvest something that transportation is actually a really really small part of that. So eating locally in terms of the carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions doesn't really do that much. Like you have to be really, really good at eating locally to make as much of a difference as like shifting from red meat to vegetables like one day a week. But, you know, to say that kind of ignores all the rest of the problems, which is that somehow it's become cheaper and more efficient to grow food in South America and ship it to New York. And the, you know, the fact that we've kind of all come to expect that we can eat berries in the winter and, you know, whatever we want at what, whatever particular time. And so eating local has a lot of benefits apart from that, which are, you know, you're supporting a person for the most part who is most likely, whether or not they're certified organic, is probably putting in place sustainable or progressive practices because it's what makes sense for them. And, you know, over the long term, like, it's cheaper to have better soil health and better water quality. And so that's what they'll do. It's really hard to evaluate. You know, people always ask me, like, well, what's better, like, eating local or eating organic? And it's like, well, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) So really, it just, you know, there's so many trade-offs and there's so many kind of misaligned incentives in in all of these different areas. And so it it is really hard to give a straight answer. And that's, you know, again, why I think it's not fair to put all of that pressure on the consumer to make a sustainable choice. Because, like, I know that because I wrote this book. (laughs) But if you're just going to the grocery store, like, you don't have that information. Mm -hmm. And so that's why these systems need to be changed such that we're not, we don't have such a chemically and fertilizer intensive agricultural process that means that it uses less energy to ship food from, you know, New Zealand or wherever it is. Right. And do you think that that needs to come like from a carbon tax? Is that an ideal scenario? And do you think, I mean, I want to believe, I read, I don't know if you guys have read David Wallace Wells' book as well, but if you don't want to sleep, you read his book. It's terrifying. (laughs) But he sort of makes the argument that ultimately we and again, the more impoverished parts of our world are the ones who are getting destroyed first by climate change, which is another great injustice. But that, you know, and I live in LA and your family was evacuated during the fires. I was evacuated. 
and it's expensive, right? Like at a certain point, we will not be able to sustain all of these environmental disasters, which are coming with greater and greater frequency. So, do you think that that will force government to act, or like, or is it going to be a carbon tax sort of created by businesses that's potentially passed on to us, but allows us to make good choices like cloth diapers or not cloth diapers? Right. Like, those are the plaguing, you know? Yeah. You know, I think that a carbon tax is probably where this starts on the policy level. And it, you know, it would kind of make the incentives align more, you know, that you wouldn't, because it would use, it would produce a lot of carbon emissions to ship something from China to the U.S., you would do that less because it wouldn't be cost effective anymore and things like that. But, you know, there are a lot of things that that doesn't address, you know, and people often talk about like, uh, you know, oh, you know, transforming the electricity grid or, you know, move, electrifying transportation, it will all be so expensive and we can't afford that. But the cost of climate change will be much, much more um, because we'll have to pay for all of the disasters as you're talking about, but also we'll have to pay to rebuild. And it's much harder to do those things, you know, when the disasters have already happened rather than to kind of plan and to mitigate, you know, against some of the, the things that we'll face. But I think it's really, you know, important, as you mentioned, that around the world, those who are least responsible for creating this problem are those who will be the most affected. And disproportionately, that's women all over the world, but it's particularly poor black, brown, and indigenous women in the global south. And those are the people who have already been living with this problem for decades, but it's also those people who, you know, people often ask me, like, well, what's the point if we can't, you know, like, if it's that bad, you know, why should we do anything or what can we even do and why bother? And we should bother because of them, because this is already killing and hurting people all over the world. And I think, you know, fundamentally, you know, what is motivating for me to keep writing about this topic is that climate change is a justice issue, fundamentally. You know, it arises out of inequality and it exacerbates inequality wherever it is. And I think that's kind of true in the terms of the effects of climate change, but also in the things that, that create it. So basically, we still get about a quarter of our electricity in the U.S. from coal, and burning coal for electricity produces coal ash, which is kind of like a soot that contains lead, mercury, arsenic, cadmium, selenium, kind of all kinds of heavy metals that are toxic to human health. And we mostly store it next to power plants, often like in rivers or dammed off sections of rivers and lakes where it can leak into the... Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Where it can seep into the groundwater or if it's stored in landfills, it can kind of blow away. And it causes all kinds of health problems, cancer and lung disease and, and all these sorts of things. And in 2008, there was a dam kind of holding back this toxic slurry collapsed in Tennessee, and it released billions and billions of gallons of this stuff into a river, it buried 300 acres of land. The waste to, to clean it up was carted away to a landfill outside a predominantly black community in Alabama. The workers who cleaned it up weren't given any protective equipment, and so dozens of people died, 200 people were made sick, and they recently won a lawsuit against the contractor. So it's one of the worst environmental disasters in American history. It happened in 2008. I never heard about it. I never heard of it before I became a climate and environment reporter. I never heard of coal ash at all. And that's part of the problem because it's really a luxury to not have to know what that is. And there are millions of Americans who live with it every day who are disproportionately communities of color, low-income communities living in rural areas. And, you know, if I'm using electricity in a particular way that can 
burns more coal, those are the people who are going to suffer from that. And so I think, you know, a society that allows people to, you know, be disproportionately affected by something like that because of their race or their income or where they live is a society that is less free and less just for all of us. And so preventing burning fossil fuels means that people don't have to live with that kind of pollution. And, you know, I think we often talk about climate change as if it's a big loss and sacrifice. And it is those things, but it also is an enormous opportunity to kind of fix a lot of these systems that have perpetuated injustice in our societies. And those changes come from, yes, coal not being burned, but also the government regulating the disposal of that particular material and getting rid of the federal regulations on coal ash which only went into effect, the first ones ever in 2015, was the first thing that the current EPA administrator did when he got into office. So, you know, these regulations and and kind of what the EPA does really does matter to all of us. So I think, you know, that's, for me, what makes me want to keep writing about this and keep, Mm -hmm. make sure that people understand. Yeah, no, it's a major social justice issue. And it was, you know, being in this recent evacuation in Los Angeles and the fires were right above our house and LAFD was amazing and saved a lot of homes and nobody died. And, you know, a lot of people reached out after and were like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, you know what? Like, don't, I'm fine. Like, I'm good. I'm in a five-star hotel with my kids on the beach watching this incredible reaction to, no one died. It's a miracle, but this is like affluent, Los Angeles, right? right? Like, this is not the response in Syria. This is not the response for all of the people who are already climate refugees. They're not refugeeing at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's not where I was. But I think it's incumbent on all of us who, you know, have all of this, the privilege to go to those places to make sure that we're not just drowning, literally, all of these people. Right. Well, and it just goes to show that, you know, no matter who you are, this problem is going to affect everybody. But, you know, how we make plans for those things and, you know, and make sure that people who don't have money can also be protected, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really important. And, And, you know, policy is kind of, we think about it in an abstract way, but policy is kind of how we determine who has power and who doesn't. And so we need to have policies that think about everybody and don't just think about the people who can already afford to protect themselves. Yeah. We'll get back to Tatiana in just a second. Women, and moms especially, can probably relate, but lately I'm spending less and less time shopping for clothes in stores. I'd rather do it online, or not at all. But every now and then, it's really nice to freshen up your wardrobe, especially when it doesn't require you to spend all day at a shopping mall. Latote is a fashion rental service that makes it easy and convenient to freshen up your wardrobe regularly for a flat monthly fee. Their mission is to make fashion accessible to every woman every day. Whether you're the kind of person who likes to try out trends or the kind of person who goes weak when you think about a trip to the mall. With Latote, you still get to choose the clothes and accessories you want to wear. You browse styles on the Tote site, pick what you want to rent, and everything gets delivered right to your door. You can wear the pieces as long as you'd like. And when you're done, you just send them back in a prepaid envelope. Le Tote does the laundry for you, so you don't have to worry about that. If you love a piece enough to keep it, you get up to 50% off the retail price. To check it out, visit letote.com. Right now, Le Tote is offering 40% off your first two months. Just use code GOOP to get your discount today. That's L-E-T-O-T-E dot com. 
and use code GOOP. Back to my chat with Tatiana. So in your research, like what, what were the most surprising things? Like what really stopped you in your tracks? Well, this may make me unpopular, but learning about the effects of cashmere <laughs> really was surprising to Uh-oh. me. So can I... And cheap cashmere, and too, cheap right? cashmere, Yeah, so cheap cashmere has kind of like led to the... You can go for it. Okay, get ready. So cheap cashmere has meant that there's like a huge growth in consumer demand, which has led to, along with a few other things, the explosion of the goat population in Mongolia and parts of China. So like in 1990, there were around 6 million goats. And it actually is, it's very difficult to get a precise estimate of the goat population in Mongolia, but I tried. And in 2004, there were around 24 million goats. So it's really grown enormously. And there, it's now represents like 60% of the livestock there. So the goats, when they, they, it's a very kind of fragile ecosystem, this high mountain prairie. And when they graze, they eat grass, they pull it up by the roots, so it kind of destroys the whole plant, which destabilizes the soil. And then they have these really sharp hooves that, like, no matter what source you're reading, are described as stiletto. But they, so they break up the soil even further, and then it kind of, it can blow across the plains and add to this already naturally occurring process of desertification, so expanding the desert. And in addition to that, climate change is happening in Mongolia and China, this part of China at a faster rate than much of the rest of the world. So the average surface temperature of the earth has warmed by about one degree Fahrenheit. In Mongolia, it's four degrees Fahrenheit. So it's mm-hmm. getting much hotter and drier. And that is adding to this process of desertification. So you get basically an additional 1,500 square miles of desert every year. So that's like the Gobi, uh, sorry, that's like adding Rhode Island to the Gobi Desert every year. There's that. And then that dust blows across the country to cities on the coast like Beijing, where it combines with soot from coal-fired power plants and factories and adds to the air pollution in Beijing. And then in another five days, it comes to California. So about 40% of the air pollution in California can be attributed to dust from Chinese factories. And so learning all of that was really incredible because I had would never have thought that those things would be connected. And also, you know, thinking like, I think we think of our clothes as kind of belonging to us and not kind of part of these big global systems, which is, shouldn't, you know, it's surprising, but it shouldn't be, you know, when we think about where our stuff is made and what it's made from. But yeah, so learning that was kind of incredible. And I think, you know, it's really, when we talk about kind of international climate policy, there's a lot of like hand-wringing about, how will we, you know, stay under two degrees Celsius if China is doing X? But, you know, we're buying a lot of the things that China is making that result in these emissions. So I think it's really important for us to acknowledge our role in these global systems. And there's no way that we're staying, it's, we're like blasting past three, right, at this rate? Well, the biggest variable in climate modeling is what we decide to do about it. So mm-hmm. we're like, we're not yet at 1.5. And there is a certain amount of warming that is kind of baked into the system just by how, how much carbon dioxide and other gases are in the atmosphere. But I think, you know, there are things that could accelerate warming. There are things that can slow it down. So it really depends what we decide to do. But yeah, what? business as usual isn't, is not below two. We have to make significant changes like net zero by 2050. Right. What are you most excited about? Like vacuuming carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere with machines that don't <laughs> exist or carbon farms mm-hmm. or... You know, in general, I think I am not what we in the climate community call a techno-optimist. <laughs> so basically, like, I don't think that technology is going to solve this problem. And I, 
also don't think we have time to wait. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it will, but we need to do a lot in the meantime. And there is a lot that we can do, you know, whether it's getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies so that fossil fuels aren't competitive and that therefore we can expand renewables, you know, installing more offshore wind, which is a huge opportunity, not deforesting Alaska, which the Trump administration wants to do, you know, not drilling for oil and gas and public lands. All, you know, there are lots of solutions that already exist, you know, like in the U.S., 67% of our, cl- our crop calories don't feed people. They feed animals, so fixing that. <laughs> so there are, there are really a lot of ways around this that, that solutions that are already available. And so, you know, I hope that maybe there's a technology someday that sucks all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but we don't have time to wait for that. Right. In the context of food and eating much lower on the food chain, which if Tatiana is not convincing you to do Valtteri Longo, well, <laughs> it's the longevity diet, guys. What... As what can we do besides buying things in a more conscientious way to just do what we can? Yeah, in f- terms of food or everything? Everything. Okay. You know, I think in, in general, what I try to do is, like, consume less. You know, mostly I don't need what I want. And I find it actually very satisfying to shop online without actually buying anything and just, like, imagine what my life would be like oh. if I were that. But, yeah, you know, I, the, the way to have this diet with the smallest carbon footprint is to eat mostly plants and then also farmed shellfish. So there, there's that. But, you know, I yeah, I think in general to consume less, to... Yeah, to really think about what you need. If you, I mean, buying secondhand or renting clothes in terms of fashion, that's really good. Eating less meat, eating less dairy. All these things are really great, but really, I think, difficult. Flying less. Sorry, United. You're buying Uh, carbon off, offsetting your carbon. Yeah, all these things are really important, but I think that those things, you know, I try to do a lot of those things because I want to be the kind of person who acts on new information as I acquire it and lives in line with my values. And I, but not because I think like that's how we solve this problem. But I, you know, I do think, or I hope that if we understand why we're making some of these sacrifices, that maybe it will make us more willing to make them. Yeah. You touched on anxiety and I guess feeling less anxious, which seems like a miracle to me, but are you (laughs) sort of, are you optimistic? Are you terrified? Like, do you think that mother earth is going to just flick us off (laughs) like a, like an ant? I mean, she's sending us some powerful signals that that's, she's getting ready. I, I don't know that I'm like hopeful or optimistic, but I, I believe that these kinds of changes are possible. I don't think I could do what I do if I didn't. But also, you know, I think I'm incredibly inspired by the youth climate strike and the suits against uh, the lawsuits against the government and, and what's happening all over the world. But I'm also really inspired because we've done this before. You know, we wouldn't have the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and a lot of the environmental really strong environmental laws that we do have if it hadn't been for the grassroots action that led to the first Earth Day and the, you know, 1970 midterm elections, which changed the makeup of Congress. And, you know, a direct result of that is those laws. And so I think, you know, the fact that this is possible, you know, 20 million Americans came out for the first Earth Day. So at the time, that's like, I mean, there were 200 million Americans. So that's like 10% of the population, which is really incredible. So like, we all have that power. And so the you know, realizing that and kind of acknowledging that that those things have happened before and that therefore they can happen again. That's what makes me feel hopeful and, and able to continue writing about all the other terrible things that are happening the rest of the time. What do you think of the New Green Deal? Like, how would you change it? And then not to put you on the spot, but who, which are there candidates who you think are really like you have faith that they will do something about this? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with anything <laughs> is, you know, it, we will not be able to get a lot done if we have a Republican Congress and Senate, even if we have a Democratic president. So that's why voting at all levels, particularly the federal level in the next election, is really important. You know, I think that the Green New Deal, there hasn't been a ton of, like, concrete policy items associated with it. So I think it's been amazing in terms of raising awareness and changing the conversation around what is possible and what kinds of radical action we do need. And I think, you know, the fact that they're getting people to understand that climate change is a s systemic and structural issue as opposed to, like, something we can isolate as being a just climate change is really important and, and really significant. You know, anything would be better than now, truly anything. So, I, you know, and I'm, you know, I think there was a lot, people were really upset that there was not a climate change question at the most recent debate, which it's right for people to be upset about that. But like every question is a climate change question. And I feel like that's really how we need mm -hmm. to be thinking about this topic. And it really matters. I will misquote this, but essentially Al Gore, who I know blurbed your book, David Wallace Wells was saying that if he had won, and maybe he did, but <laughs> if he had become president and enacted sort of his plan, we would be at like half a degree. Like it, it would have been dramatic. A lot of this has happened in the, just in the past few decades. So it really matters dramatically, I think, for, for our kids and our grandchildren. And I think we sort of all thought maybe this will be our kids' grandkids' problem. And it's becoming, at least it feels apparent to me that this is no our problem. Right. Like this is going yeah. to affect us. Right. Yeah. I think we often, it's like we hear like 2050 or 2100 and then we're like, okay, that's when it happens. But it, it happens a lot before then too. Yeah. And it's happening. I mean, what's this weather, what's becoming weather is like abnormal events mm -hmm. constantly. And so it's, and it's only going to happen with more frequency because we're, we're not that far along and right. sort of what's, what's to come. Yeah. More frequency and more intensity also. So it's a lot to look forward to. Yay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tatiana Schlossberg. For more on Tatiana, head to tatianaschlossberg.com. That's S-C-H-L-O-S-S-B-E-R-G. And then say that 18 times fast. And make sure to get a copy of her book, Inconspicuous Consumption. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>